This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this history episode of the podcast is my first time co-host, and I'm, I'm overjoyed to have her uh, on the show with me, Jenny Pompey, who's an editor at Proceedings and Naval History staff. Jenny, how are you doing uh, in the home office environment? I'm doing great, you know, hoping that we can maintain a, a good level of silence for our call here. Yeah, so so you're you're a mom and your kids are are they doing the virtual learning thing? They are. They're 12 and 13, so they're both in middle school and they are fully virtual online for school and there's no plans for them to go back anytime soon we just heard. So, um that's the life we live right now. Right. So, we have a a great guest with us today and a a friend of the Naval Institute, a guy who's been involved in a in myriad ways uh commander joel holworth active duty submarine officer served in four fast attack nuclear subs he's class of 03 from the academy and we were just chatting before we came on air and apparently i i was one time his ethics prof for a day right is that correct y'all? <laughs> that's um, absolutely right yeah so um that's uh that's really cool and it makes me feel really old but i love that um, had a lot of fun teaching ethics back uh, when he was a mid. And Joel has gone on since he, he graduated with his BS, and, and he now has a PhD in history from Ohio State. Um, he's the author of Execute Against Japan, the U.S. Decision to Conduct Unrestricted Submarine Warfare, which was published by Texas A&M University Press in 2009. So, Joel, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ward, and thank you, Jenny. Really great to be here. Uh, before I get started, I do have to quickly say that any views presented here are mine and do not necessarily represent the views of the U.S. Department of Defense or its components. So the good news is you're going to be getting totally candid me uh, and nothing, uh, you know, canned, uh, you know, Navy. That's <laughs> so, all we want. We don't want right, anything awesome. but. Who wants a PAO's canned you? We don't want that. So the, the article is in the December issue of Naval History Magazine, um, Lessons from Admiral Elmo, which is Elmo Zumwalt. Um, so I'm old enough, as we just recognized by the fact I taught you as I was a commander when you were a mid. That was my last tour on active duty. Um, I'm old enough to remember the Zumwalt era. Um, so I was a Marine Corps junior. Um, when Zumwalt was CNO, my dad was the assistant naval attache to, um, in Holland. So we lived in The Hague. In fact, I just went back there last year and, and saw my old house and where the embassy used to be and so forth. So it was really cool. 46 years later, not a whole lot has changed in, in The Hague and, and the uh, surrounding neighborhoods. But Zumwalt was the CNO. So your article is brilliant in that it explores 
his tenure in basically two tracks. One is the strategic warfighting track, and the other is sort of the, let's just call it the social engineering track. So that, that to me is the more intriguing part because of the resonant effects that his, his, the guy he, that followed him, um, Holloway, who, who I also knew uh, pretty well before he passed away, um, had to deal with. And there were some resonant effects that still existed when I walked into the Naval Academy during the summer of 1978. So let's talk a little bit about this article. So set it up for us, Joel. I think one of the things I, I really found fascinating about uh, writing this article was I came to it with a couple of uh, preconceived notions of what I thought um, uh, what I thought Admiral Zumwalt's time as CNO was all about. Uh, you know, some really great books already out there. Uh, Larry Berman wrote a book, uh, and Tom Cutler's written an article, and Norman Freeman wrote a great biographical essay. Uh, so there's already a lot of stuff about Zumwalt, so I thought I already had an understanding about uh, what Admiral Zumwalt's tour as CNO was all about. Um, and, uh, I'd already had some conclusions and then I was like, all right, well, let me get, let's get into the primary sources and start really fleshing this out. And when I did that, I realized that, uh, there was actually a lot of stuff that was not, uh, there already in the historical record. And that was really fascinating for me as a historian. Uh, and, uh, there's a lot that I just couldn't get into the 3000 words of my essay that I wish I could have. Uh, just to flesh out even more some of the stuff that wasn't in the record that I thought was kind of new or that was in the record but hadn't really been been focused on previously. Um, and so to begin with, uh, a lot of uh, writers, uh, I'm going to forget his first name, Robert, I think, Kozlowski, in a great blog article at Naval Institute uh, a few years ago, have talked a lot about Zumwalt's Project 60. Um, and that was, you know, when Zumwalt became CNO, he knew he had a very short period of time to really enact change. And that's the way it is for all these guys. Uh and in fact, I really first got interested in Zomwalt when I was uh, the the token Navy guy with the chief of staff of the Army Strategic Studies Group back in 2013 to 2014. Uh, I was there as a lieutenant turning into a lieutenant commander of my, after my department head tour. I was the only Navy guy with all these Army fellows and one Air Force officer, uh, some civilians. Um, it was a really great experience, but I remember we, we met with, uh, at the time, was General Odierno was the chief of staff of the Army, uh, so we were working directly for him. Uh, we met with him, we met with his predecessor, General Dempsey, and we met with a bunch of other really senior officers, and they all just kept emphasizing that you really needed to create uh, an agenda from the get-go uh, and really roll with that very early on. Otherwise, uh, your tour, you know, it's a very short tour, only four years, uh, you might not see those things really come to pass during your tour, and they might not even really come to pass during the follow-on tours, depending on what your successors do. And Zumwalt uh, very instinctively understood this. Um, and he came up with this thing called Project 60. And uh, when I went in, what I thought Project 60 was all about, based on Zumwalt's memoir, On Watch, terrific book, uh, and uh, Larry Berman's biography and Robert Kozlowski's article, I thought Project 60 was all about the high-low mix. Um, and Zumwalt coming in and saying, hey, we need to take care of people, but I also need this high-low mix. I need a lot of really high-end warships uh, that can really fight the you know high-end fights, but I also need these low-end warships because I need some ships that I can build very cheaply and send out there uh, and just maintain presence. And I mean, this is a conversation we continue to have in the Navy. Uh, and I guess where LCS came from. And I mean, he goes way back before Zumwalt. Norman Freeman in his aircraft carriers book talks about how really the light carriers, World War II, the independence class escort carriers were really uh, low end platforms before we ever talked about high low complementing the Essex class high end carriers. Uh, so it's a very old concept, and so it wasn't really anything new, but Zomalt is, is very well known for it. And if you read his memoir, that's what Project 60 was all about. 
imagine my surprise when I read Project 60 and said, and the word low shows up six times and never about platforms or weapons. There's not anything about the high-low mix in there. And so as a historian, I was really fascinated to realize, hmm, this thing that we have commonly accepted as part of the, the Zumwalt uh, narrative is not in there. Uh, and so um, really then that that then led me to completely deconstruct what I originally was going to write and really get into the primary sources and figure out what did Zumwalt say when he became CNO? What did he actually execute? And what are some of those lasting legacies for today? And why is it that you know his legacy is so uh, so controversial? Because uh, you talk to a lot of people, it's still he still causes a lot of emotion 50 years later. I mean, a lot of folks either hate him or love him. Uh, and there's very, very little in between uh, when you talk about Emerald Zumwalt. Um, and so part of that goes back to his background, which is not something I chose to address in my essay. That's one of those things that is normally addressed a lot by people about Zumwalt is uh, they focus a lot on his biography. And it, it, it is a neat biography. Uh, he, he was the most, uh, the youngest guy to become CNO. Uh, he was only 49 when he became CNO. And, uh, uh, the second youngest guy, Emerald Johnson, uh, he just beat him by only a few months. Um, uh, so Zumwalt remains our youngest CNO. Uh, he had no four-star experience before he became CNO. So, uh, you know, the only other vice admiral we've had since him to become CNO is the current one, Emerald Gilday. Uh, he hadn't had a numbered fleet command. He didn't do a lot of the normal things that CNOs did. Um, and so he was very unusual going into that. And uh, a lot of people often focus on that unusual biography he has of having uh, worked directly for the Secretary of the Navy, Paul Nitza, uh, who was a tremendous mentor to Zumwalt, uh, having stood up the Systems Analysis Division at the Pentagon under McNamara, uh, where he made a tremendous number of enemies, and having commanded the uh, naval forces in Vietnam uh, with General Creighton Abrams when we turned to the strategy of Vietnamization. Uh, and honestly, he probably started Vietnamization before Creighton Abrams started doing it and before President Nixon said that was going to be our policy. Um, so a lot of people often focus on that part of the, uh, of Zumwalt. And I think it's a very interesting thing, but, uh, you know, biography, a, a person's biography doesn't necessarily make them a great leader or, you know, doesn't really define how they're going to be. I mean, if, you know, we, we judged everybody on their previous biography, then Herbert Hoover would, uh, would be one of our greatest presidents of the United States. And we, unfortunately he was a total dud, uh, <laughs> despite a, an amazing biography before he took office. Um, so, and I think Zumwalt realized that, that he, he had to be a very uh, a change agent as CNO and that he'd been brought in to be a change agent. He was brought in against the recommendation of the uh, outgoing CNO, who was going to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Moore. Uh, he was brought in very specifically by the civilian secretary of the Navy and the civilian secretary of defense, uh, John Chaffee and Melvin Laird. Um, and uh, in, his, in his memoir, he brings up that he knew he was brought in to be a change agent um, and that uh, he needed to really focus on some pretty major things. Um, and then afterwards, recognizing that he was very controversial, I think he decided he wanted to get the first attempt to write history. He wrote his memoir. Um, and that has really set, uh, uh, I think the way people think about his years is, uh, he did it, you know, by getting there first and writing his memoir, he has really set the way we think about, uh, some of the things that happened during his tour. And that's been both good and bad. Uh, cause I think there are some things that he didn't realize that he had done that were good uh, or didn't emphasize enough. And there were some other things that I think, uh, he definitely was very defensive about, that were kind of negative and do deserve to be discussed, uh, uh today. Um, but, uh, you know, because he got there first, uh, he got to have the opportunity to really set the narrative very early on. It's kind of like what Winston Churchill liked to say during the second world war. Well, you know, he's like, well, we'll let history decide. And I know what history's going to say, cause I'm going to write it. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, 
I, that's something that really struck me in reading your article. Um, one of the things that I thought that really came through to me was that it seemed like Zumwalt really knew he was building a legacy. Um, he was very aware of it. You know, he knew that he was not going to be uh, a CNO that sort of, you know, quietly slips into the annals of history. He knew he was there to build a legacy and he worked so quickly to make change too. That was the other thing, especially thinking about our current environment and how it seems to take so much longer for very incremental change to happen, but this seemed very fast to me. Um, so could you want to speak a little bit to that, a little bit to his legacy building and, you know, just his, his, you know, quick reforms? Uh, yeah. I mean, let me actually begin by talking about something that, uh, you know, that actually was a long-term thing that ended up being his top priority. And it's something that not many people have actually realized was his top priority. I think that's, and I think it's worth bringing that up first. And then before we go into these like really quick, uh, rapid changes that he made. Um, and this priority, which he does mention to some degree in his memoir, but you know, to a, not, not to the extent that you would think, uh, that that seems appropriate today. Uh, and it's at the very beginning of project 60. Um, and I, I, I did a double take when I read this, it says, uh, is it, it comes at the, almost the very first page of the document, like one of the first paragraphs, it says, quote, strategic deterrence must come first, unquote. And when I first read that, I said, Huh, did I pick up the wrong document? This sounds like something that could have been written in the last 10 years about trying to get Columbia class as the Navy's top priority. What's happening here? Um, and uh, and when Zumwalt wrote his memoir in the you know, two to four years after he was no RCNO in the late 70s, uh, the next strategic deterrent that he had championed, Trident, had not yet come out. So in his memoir, he said, I think this is one of the most important things I did as CNO. But even at the time, he didn't realize whether or not he'd truly been successful um, whereas today, uh, with, uh, Trident class summaries having been out for almost 40 years, uh, you know, it seems almost for, you know, preordained that those were going to be successful, that those were absolutely necessary. Um, and, uh, this is one of those things that I wish I could have been able to write about a little bit longer in the essay was how really remarkable, um, it was that, uh, that Zumwalt recognized this as a priority and as his top priority, uh, in 1970, because um, if you think about it, the 41 for Freedom had just finished building. We had built 41 uh, ballistic missile submarines during the 1960s, the, starting with the George Washington, uh, and then very rapidly built 41 submarines, two crews apiece, 82 crews, huge stress upon the nuclear Navy and upon the Navy as a whole to build these ships and get them out to sea, uh, each carrying uh, 16 uh, nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. Uh, and then, you know, so Zomal comes in and only like a, year or two after the last one's finished building says uh we need to start thinking about the next one and to some degree that already, there already had been some thinking there already been some think tanks within the navy saying hmm, we might need this but zomo was the one who really prioritized it and uh saying you know the the first one of these boats is going to start decomming in only 10 to 15 years i need to have the replacements ready to go so that we don't risk a deterrent gap and i and one of the things that people forget about zomo is he really was a hawk uh you know he actually ran uh, you know, for the Senate after uh, his time in the Navy, because he actually did not like the uh, the detente policies of Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon. Uh, he was he very much felt they were giving away the store, um, and so he very much was against you know allowing any t- type of deterrent gap. Um, and it was very important to him that we start building a new uh, ballistic missile submarine early to prevent that. And he recognized it takes a long time 
to build a modern acquisitions program. Uh, and I think he was one of the first people to really recognize how long ac- modern acquisitions programs take following the McNamara era uh, to realize that he needed to start something in 1970 that wouldn't go to sea until the 1980s. Uh, and that's that. I think that, that the long view is something that not a lot of people had or even continue to have. And historically, and this was something I ended up having to cut out, I wanted to keep this paragraph so badly, uh, you compare our experience with the experience of the British, who they built their ballistic missile submarines in the late 60s. Uh, using our technology. Um, and then, uh, unlike us, they waited until the early 1980s to talk about the follow-on submarine. Um, and then when they did that, you know, they went through all the things we did, which was arguing to get it through their parliament, in our case, and through Congress, uh, to get them to approve the funds, to build all the right stuff, to get the infrastructure put in place just to build the submarine and then to build the submarine. And then by the time they finally had their follow-on submarines uh, come out, the Vengeance class and uh, – in the early 1990s, there are old resolution class submarines were in such disrepair uh, and having such a hard time going to sea that really there was like at one point only one of them that could go to sea. And they were just cycling that crew over and over and over and over again to keep that that submarine at sea to maintain their deterrent. Um, and so that was very hard. I mean, you, know, you read this one British officer in, in the great uh, British Cold War submarine history, the Silent Deep, talking about how he was at sea for almost 300 days in one year. Um, that's a, uh, pretty phenomenal amount. Um, and so you think about that and you compare their experience to ours and you think about, wow, you know, they're really so remarkable that Admiral Zumwalt was very much ahead of the curve, recognizing he needed to do this, um, to have that kind of long vision. And, and it says a lot about Zumwalt compared to some of his successors that he recognized that. And if you think about it, if, if, uh, Admiral, if we had recognized this lesson from history in the late 1990s, early 2000s, um, I think that might've there'd be a lot of things that would be different right now for us in the Navy in terms of the Columbia class and the following to the Ohio's, uh, as it was, Zomalt didn't give a lot of priority to this in his memoir. And most historians didn't give a lot of priority to this in their, in their write-ups about Zomalt. Cause most of them, you know, looked at it and said, well, Ohio was going to happen no matter what. And, uh, I, I don't think that actually is the right answer. And I think as we have seen, uh, you know, because we didn't prioritize a follow on, uh, ballistic missile submarine in the early 2000s. Uh, we are now in the crunch uh, here in 2020 with Columbia, where Emil Richardson, uh, before he left, said we are on budget, but only on budget. We are on time, but we are just on time. Uh, and recently, Naval Institute News had an article talking about how we are going to uh, look at another extension for the life of the Ohio class submarines. And I'm sure that is something we can do. Uh, and that is something that we should do. Uh, to prevent a deterrence gap, but that is going to be done on the backs of our sailors. Um, and that is going to be very tough. Uh, and it's going to be very hard. It's going to be very costly. It limits capability. You can't go as deep. You can't go as fast. You know, yeah, they're put in the sea, but this isn't a full up submarine. Yeah. I, I don't know what we'll do in order to get the, in order to get the waiver in order to, uh, to, to extend the life. What I do know uh, you know, having seen this, whether you take very old equipment and maintain it, you know, this was equipment that was good uh, when it was purchased in the 1970s. Um, and yeah, we've done a lot of things to backfit stuff and uh, to keep things operating and put in new things. But at the end of the day, you're still dealing with essentially a 50 year old ship. Uh, and that comes down to these really great sailors on the deck plate having to maintain it and having to keep it going. And that is really hard. And that is a decision, uh, frankly, that was made long before most of these. Most of these young sailors who will be doing it in the 2030s, people who are like my children's age right now, um, that was a decision that was made before any of them were born or even thought about being born when many of us uh, were actually pretty young. Um, you know, when we did not prioritize uh, 
did not make strategic deterrence first in the early 2000s. Well, you, you frame it right in that it's a guess, right? Procurement is such a long lead defense procurement. You know, we're not talking about uh, Silicon Valley procurement. We're talking about defense procurement is, is long lead. And when I was reading your article, the parallels just jumped out at me between that era and now. We just talked to the Commandant of the Marine Corps a couple of shows ago, and he's talking about smaller carriers and he's talking about a high low mix and and that sort of same language but so as this this picture that we have here of the, of the different platforms on page 38 that's basically the navy that i served in in my first let's just say two tours and that's that's the cold war like chapter one of my operational career is cold war go to the med i was an east coast sailor stay there Right? Maybe you'd go through the ditch and hang out in the North Arabian Sea. You wouldn't dare go into the Gulf proper, but it's mostly med focused, right? So, Zumwalt guessed right in terms of the air wing, in terms of the battle group, what we used to call a battle group. So, that's Spruance, that's or Los Angeles class fast attacks, which you'd have two in company, Tomcats, S3s, you know, so forth and so on. That was a very effective multiple against the Soviet threat at sea, as well as their long-range bomber threat. So Zumwalt guessed correctly. The other thing that jumped out at me, and I'd like you to comment on this, was the operational environment is parallel to what we're dealing with now. So Vietnam is going on. That's an asymmetric threat. It took up all of our tactical focus and a lot of our resources, you know, Yankee Station, Dixie Station, um, Marines in Da Nang and Chulai and, and so forth and so on. But in parallel to that, we're worried about the high-end threat, right? Soviet Union particularly. Um, and so that's like, okay, for the last 19 years, we've been fighting an asymmetric threat where we're talking about MRAPs and body armor and IEDs and TAC Air is doing close air support at best, but it's not a high-end war. And now suddenly it's the return to peer conflict return to the high-end fight. So this is very reminiscent of what Zumwalt was dealing with. And the question, which you've just posited, is are we guessing right? And I think there are some indications. Like you said, 10 years ago, we didn't guess right. And that's not just a sub thing. You framed it in sub-terms, but that's a, that's an aircraft carrier thing too. That's a amphibious Navy thing. It's, it's, it's across the board, every warfare, especially every branch of service in the sea services. So... What do you think about those parallels and, and how are we postured and what lessons, this is part of what you talk about, should we draw from how, how Zumwalt did that part of it? And then I want to talk about the cultural piece, um, but let's talk about that. So I absolutely agree. Uh, a lot of parallels, um, you know, because we had this period, uh, I mean, it's, it's, very, it's very striking how similar 1970 in many ways is to 2019, 2020, um, to the last couple of years where we had a 25 year period where really we, there was no one who was really going to challenge us at sea. Um, and, uh, and now, uh, suddenly we've woken up and, uh, the Chinese Navy is bigger than ours. Uh, they have more numbers and we can always talk about, well, we got more missiles or they got more missiles. You know, you can argue about that to your blue in the face about who has better weaponry, you know, who has, you know, oh, we got 11 aircraft carriers. They've got two and, you know, they're both knockoffs, whatever. Um, you know, at the end of the day, they have a Navy that can very effectively fight for sea control in their 
uh, local waters and pushing out uh, to do the objectives that I think they probably want to do. Um, and uh, which means that we will probably probably find it challenging to execute our objectives and our Pacific Fleet commanders and our PACOM commanders in the last couple of years have been very candid with Congress saying that uh, and saying that that is an issue. And I think that's exactly the situation that Zumwalt's only discovered he faced when he became CNO was that, uh, you know, for the 25 years after World War II, uh, the Soviet Navy had not really been a serious threat. It had a, a lot of submarines and we had built up a tremendous anti-submarine warfare capability to go up against those. And if you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the only Soviet ships that really, really tested us during that crisis were their submarines. I mean, we were able to intercept their surface uh, merchant ships very easily and uh, force them to turn around. Um, but they didn't have any uh, they didn't have a surface fleet that was going to contest uh, the control of the seas in the Caribbean with us during 1962. Uh, fast forward to 1970 and suddenly they had a bigger navy than ours. And they really did have a large surface fleet that could contest control of the seas. And. And Zumwalt, uh, at a very early stage, uh, as CNO, told uh, Melvin Laird that, uh, you know, the Russians now have a, quote, a two-ocean navy. If our naval forces are reduced below the level of what we have right now, we will no longer be able to oppose them simultaneously in the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, unquote. And I think you could take that quote and you could probably apply it to, to today, where we face a, a growing re- uh, Chinese navy and a resurgent Russian navy. Because uh, the Russians are back in a big way as well. Um, and, uh, you know, we take a look at our current force structure and where we are. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's the exact same, same issue that, that Zumwalt faced. And and similarly, uh, Zumwalt inherited a Navy that was mostly World War II ships. There were a lot of – there were some high-end platforms that Arleigh Burke had really spurred the building of. Most of them were nuclear-powered. But uh, as Zumwalt, who, who recognized the advantages of nuclear power but also did not – you know, get along at all with Admiral Rickover, the uh, director of naval nuclear propulsion, uh, said, you know, hey, they're very expensive. They, you know, you can't make them in large numbers. And, uh, you know, when you have a, uh, at a certain point, if that's all you build, then you're going to have an all high Navy. And uh, it's very, very good, very capable, but it's not very big and it's not able to take on a lot of challenges. Um, And so I, and so he had those select high end ships and then everything else was these old World War II ships that were coming due on it's time to retire them. Uh, getting very old. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what do you do at that point? Um, and he inherited, uh, he, he inherited a lot of these ships that, that, yes, like you said, are the Cold War Navy, the Spruance class destroyer, the Los Angeles class submarine, um, the S3, S3 Viking, uh, E2 Hawkeye. Uh, a lot of these ships and aircraft really started in the late sixties. Um, and Zumwalt's, uh, I think Zumwalt's big contribution was really, uh, Getting on the mat, and while he didn't was not necessarily a fan of some of these ships, he thought they, a lot of them were too expensive, and he says that quite frequently in his memoir. Uh, he definitely got on the mat in front of Congress to say we absolutely need these platforms uh, for sea control purposes. He's you know and just re- continued reiterating this concept of sea control, which was not something that his predecessors had had to talk about uh, since World War II. This concept of command of the sea, uh, or as as Zumwalt liked to say, it's sea control. Uh, which is something that uh, uh, Stansfield Turner really introduced uh, to him when he was working for him, helping to write Project 60. Um, and uh, I think that's a concept that, once again, we are now uh, having to really look at. Because, uh, I mean, there was this long period, uh, I think particularly the littoral combat ship, when it was designed, <laughs> the thought was we had control of the sea um, and that that would be able to operate in the littorals without uh, significant opposition. 
uh, that's no longer a valid assumption. We no longer have control of the sea. And in fact, I think we actually have to think very strongly about what sea denial campaigns we are going to be doing, uh, which is also a, a thought that I think goes into the, the Zumwalt era and the World War II era, where there's going to be areas that, that our adversary controls uh, that we will have to penetrate uh, with uh, with platforms that are we associate with sea denial, whether that's uh, submarines or aircraft, um, in order to uh, inflict losses before we can move forward and then gain sea control. Um, and so you have to have these platforms for sea control. So I think Zumwalt's big contribution during this period was to effectively argue that we need to have sea control platforms to really bring sea control into the center of strategic uh, doctrine once again. And uh, John Haddendorf. Uh, has a quote that you know by the uh, mid 1970s, sea control was all over our uh, strat- uh, strategy documents and strategic doctrine, where it hadn't been five years before. And I think a lot of it has to do with Zumwalt, uh, and um, I think a lot of this reaches its natural uh, its natural end in the maritime strategy of 1986. I think a lot of that owes its genesis to the early 1970s with Zumwalt turning the conversation to sea control. Um, and there's a lot of other authors involved with that. I don't want to. I don't want anyone to walk away thinking that Zumwalt did the, all of this, but I think he played a very important role in transitioning the Navy uh, from from the Navy of the 1960s, which could take sea control for granted, to the Navy of the 1970s and the 1980s, which recognized the sea control was not going to be something uh, that we would have from the get-go, and that it would be something that we would have to fight for, and that we needed the platforms. Uh, necessary to win sea control in a contested environment. Um, and that is what I think these, these, those are important lessons for today. We need to figure out what platforms do we really want to have, what weapons do we really need uh, for sea control. And I think there's a lot of anti-ship, uh, anti-air, anti-sub weapons that we need to be expediting uh, that are next generation. The weapons, A lot of the weapons we have date back to the 1960s, 1970s. Uh, the Mark 48 torpedo, love that thing. We've done a lot of really cool things with it. It's still a 1960s torpedo. Uh, the Harpoon missile, love that thing. It's great. Uh, we've had it since the 1970s, and that was one of the things that that, that Zumwalt expedited when he was CNO. Um, and I, I think we're taking a lot of the right steps to getting all these weapons, but we really need to be the the priority right after strategic deterrence uh, for our fleet. And anything that doesn't contribute, I think you know we need to just ruthlessly and relentless and uh, pitilessly get rid of. And that's and that, that's a tough call. A lot of communities won't like that. I know my community uh, would, probably would not like my 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 feeling, which is that the GNs, uh, we could probably decom those early and uh, not lose anything. I think a lot of combatant commanders might disagree with me, and I'm just a junior commander. What do I know? Uh, but uh, I, 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 you know, I'm not sure that those actually add to sea control, and they take away eight crews, um, and they take away maintenance and time that could go to other things. Uh, and then the surface Navy, I know similarly, they've been trying to decom a bunch of their Ticonderoga class cruisers for a while, uh, and, um, are pretty much keeping some of them pier side, which I, I think is probably the right answer. Littoral combat ship, uh, you know, I'm not a SWO. Maybe, maybe there's something there that, that I just don't fully understand. And, and I think, uh, aviators, I mean, uh, you know, talking to some of my friends in the aviation community, I mean, we fly some very old platforms where, uh, you know, that's that it's you know just like what I was talking about, how it's going to be on the backs of our sailors to maintain uh, some of these uh, these ships. Well, it's on the back of our our operator, our maintenance guys right now to maintain some of these aircraft uh, that really, you know, like they are past their sell by date. Um, and 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 you know, Ward, I defer to you on this as an aviator, but I mean, there's probably some helicopters and some and some other. Uh, Aircraft that, you know, like we have gone way past the number of cycles those airframes were ever supposed to take, and it's probably time to ground them. 
Um, and that sucks, but, uh, you know, it, it also frees up money and frees up people to go do other things. Yeah, no, you're right. are more related to sea control. On the, on the airplane side, uh, you know, we put them through Sidlam, you, you, you take them to an ADEP, um, you know, center barrel inspections, other wing cracks, things are discovered. So as we were talking about submarines in terms of operational capability, uh, gets mitigated. And I'm not asking us to leave the, uh, the unclass arena here, but what I'm saying is, in the, in the case of, let's say, an F-14, an F-14 suddenly cannot go into afterburner. Therefore, it's no longer a supersonic airplane. An F-14 can only pull three and a half Gs and not six and a half Gs. So it's no longer going to be able to keep up. I mean, if you're in a dogfight, you'll do what you got to do. Um, hopefully, the airplane won't break in the, in the course of pulling six and a half Gs. But the training piece is hampered because suddenly you can't do a full-up, kick-ass, Top Gun movie dogfight. Um, and so that, that affects training. And, and so this matters. This What you're talking about is a universal issue. And I think you're right on when you said 10 years ago. So what we're living in now is, is you know, Zumwalt did it right. We're living through a period where we did it wrong. Um, we won't put the who in it. But now we have the opportunity um, to, to get it right again. So I, I want to be mindful of time here. Uh, I just want to pivot to the social side of Zumwalt. And I will say that my father-in-law, who passed away a couple of years ago, Naval Academy Class 56, um, was an A6 pilot in this era. Um, in fact, when Zumwalt was, was CNO, uh, he was a department head in, in back-to-back sea tours, of operating guy. When I used to complain about you know going to sea for six months, he'd tell me what was what in terms of, I went for 11 months, came home for two months, and went back for nine months, right? That kind of thing. And so I will say he had nothing good to say about Elmo Zumwalt because of what you mentioned, which is the unintended consequences of some of the things he did to try to improve retention. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think, uh, you know, Zumwalt's one of those guys when it comes to the uh, to the people part of this that uh, he's both a hero and a villain. Um, but I think, you know, for the most part, and even the people who disagreed with him for the most part always, always said it was well-intentioned. Um, and I think Zumwalt's first and most important contribution, I think this is something that all Navy leaders can take to heart is that he really thought the Navy should be fun. And I really like that quote that he had, you know, like one of his very first messages, he said, I want to re- I want to improve the quality of life in all respects. And I want to restore the zest of going to sea. Um, and, uh, I, I think it really hits the nail on like why a lot of us joined the Navy to begin with. Like we think that this is, you know, it's not a job, it's a, it's an adventure. Uh, it's supposed to be an adventure, and a lot of it's it's supposed to be fun. To that point, Joel, again, being the old guy in the conversation here, um, joining the Navy was out of fashion in the early 70s. The Vietnam War was terribly unpopular, so, it, you know, it, the cool kids were not showing up to the recruiting station to join the Navy. You know, we had a draft, so... He was trying to create these programs against a, a pop culture phenomenon that was very anti-military, and we can't forget that. And, and this is when people say, thank you for your service, I'm mindful that we live in a time where it's a great luxury that we have in terms of the public attitudes towards military service. Because I watched my dad get hassled in public when he was in his uniform when we lived in Washington, D.C., that's the backdrop, right? That was sort of the initial momentum for him trying to do some of these things. So if you look at a cruise book from the early 70s, the hairstyles are over the top and they have full beards and it's really crazy looking. So uh, so a lot of people always, you know, like people would say, uh, Zomal, like you, you know, would associate him with the three Bs, which was uh, beer, 
beards and broads. Um, and uh, I think, you know, that was actually unfair in all respects. Um, first off, uh, you know, if you look, uh, and, and he even mentions this, like if you look at one of his Z-grams, he actually straight up says, I'm only continuing what my predecessor started. Uh, it was actually Moore and the, and the Secretary of Navy, John Chaffee, uh, Admiral Moore and John Chaffee, who actually start allowed beards to come back and allowed these longer haircuts um, and all that. Uh, and, and Zumwalt, for better or for worse, got tarred with it. Um, but I think, you know, like uh, to a, you know, and like, and as you said, yeah, we weren't necessarily getting the cream of the crop volunteering to be in the Navy. Um, but at the same time, the Navy wasn't making anything better in terms of trying to get people to want to be in the Navy either or to retain these people. And, um, you know, talking to, you know, and, and talking to people who were in at the time, uh, you know, a lot of different perspectives. But one thing that really, really trumps out at me and that Zumwalt himself addressed in his Z-grams, uh, these messages that he would send to everybody, uh, these nav admins, uh, as we would call them today, was how – uh, I'm going to mispronounce this word because I, I have har- horrible word attack skills – infantilized, infantilized, I don't know, I'll try and say it, how much we treated sailors like children back then that you know like it was normal for the time today you think about it you're like wow that seems crazy where overnight liberty was never a given you had to submit a special request for every overnight liberty and so if a chief was like hey i don't like the job you're doing you guys didn't clean this up the way i want uh you're behind your quals you can stay on the ship until you figure it out um today i associate that with going to captain's mass and being put on restriction uh that was normal uh in the late 60s early 70s when zonewall became cno uh, cause that was just the way we had always treated sailors up until that point. And I think he recognized that was no longer acceptable for a, uh, generation who, uh, had been, was better educated, uh, had come up in more affluence than, uh, their great depression, um, predecessors, um, and, uh, really needed to be treated, you know, given the responsibility and treated, uh, as grownups. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as one, one person wrote to me after reading my article, and I, I just love, you know, this one is, you, know, you just, this, as an author, you always want to get emails like this where someone says, oh, yeah, hey, you got it absolutely right. And, and someone wrote another email where he said, oh, you got it completely wrong. But they both said something very similar where they talked about, uh, you know, the importance of, of, of local leadership. And, uh, and one of the things that, uh, you know, they said, though, you know, what this person wrote was, uh, you know, what, what Zumwalt was saying was this in a Navy where leaders are hammers, uh, Sailors are no longer nails because up until that point, all leaders were hammers and all sailors were nails. Um, and uh, I, I think that works when you have a guaranteed supply. Uh, when you do have a draft, people are going to join the Navy no matter what. Uh, and you can accept 10 percent retention. But after you bring in an all-volunteer military, which is where we were going when Zumwalt took over CNO and he, he saw the handwriting on the wall, he knew I need to have better retention. I have to start treating my people with dignity and respect. Um, and that was a huge change. And, uh, and where that really hurt was, uh, you know, where that really, uh, you know, where we did see retention fall was the chiefs, uh, a lot of senior enlisted and, and also mid to senior military who were like, Hmm, the way I grew up, the way that I have been taught to impose discipline or run discipline no longer works because the CNO won't let me do it anymore. Uh, what the heck? Um, and some communities weren't as affected by that. I mean, you see this in oral histories by some Rainers who for the most part have antipathy towards towards Zumwalt because of his days and systems analysis. And they, there's some really ugly stuff that happened in the late sixties with a submarine that, uh, submariners would refer to as fat Albert. Um, that fortunately never happened, but Zumwalt was associated with that submariners never forgave him for. Uh, 
but they also not, we never really had any of these issues because, you know, we always, we'd already learned how to treat an all volunteer force. You know, we, we knew what we had to do in order to make good for good retention and stuff like that. But other communities that, that hadn't had to rely on, on good leadership tools, uh, were suddenly being forced to do that. And I think where Zumwalt fell short was, you know, one of his subordinates once uh, had a, has this quote that was in proceedings where he said, I think Zumwalt thought he had a more enlightened uh, constituency than he really did. Uh, I love that quote. I wish I could have gotten it into my article as well. Um, and uh, in, the, in, in the officer's case, you know, who, who says that quote, he was talking about the junior sailors. But I also think it really applies to the senior enlisted and also the mid, the senior officers who – uh, were suddenly being forced to really reapproach how they had done leadership up until that point. Um, and I think it's really hard to overstate what a change Zomal was forcing them to to embrace, uh, to retain people, and not to rely on the tools they had relied on before uh, for discipline. And uh, and someone wrote a letter to uh, to you know that uh, Jenny sent me uh, disagreeing with my article, saying, "Well, you know, I think you know we we sat down on my ship and we figured this out, and with good leadership we were able to do it." I think that just proves my point, uh, to be honest. I, and, and I'm grateful for that writer writing in. Uh, you know, that it's a great perspective. But I mean, it really comes down to what's the local leadership like. Uh, and Zomo was relying on having leaders on the deck plate who were going to do the things he wanted them to do, and he didn't always have that. And that that created a lot of of problems that I don't think he intended to have happen. And also that he didn't necessarily provide the tools to those leaders to help them with either. I mean, having taken away one set of tools, he didn't necessarily provide new tools to help them figure out what the right answer was. Um, and as you know, he probably needed to do that. Um, and I think that was one of the reasons why the successors, Admiral Holloway, Admiral Shear, um, you know, had these very negative comments about the disciplinary situation in the Navy after Zumwalt. They felt that he had really uh, removed a lot of things that were necessary for discipline. And while they did not put back in place all the things that Zumwalt had taken away, um, they really uh, were forced to um, – to take some pretty strong actions to try and maintain discipline. And that was a, and, and that's a tough, that's a tough thing for any leader to, to, to do. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there's this, this myth that's grown up about Zomwalt that all these cool things that he put in place got taken away after he, uh, after he wasn't the CNO anymore. And that's also not true. Uh, he canceled his Z grams. Uh, but I mean, if you take a look, a lot of these things, if you go through his Z grams, I went through every single Z gram, uh, one by one by one, the Naval History and Heritage Commands has them all uh, posted on their website, which is a terrific resource. Um, and I went through, and it was just really amazing to me how many things. I was like, well, oh, this is still around. This is still around. Like the Meritorious Advancement Program, we've, we've called it MAP. We've called it CAP. Now it's MAP again. Uh, we still use that in order to promote high-performance sailors who are, you know, they, they're not able to pass their rating examination for whatever reason. You, you see that, you know, just a guy who, like, this guy should be the LPO for whatever reason. He can't make first class because he can't pass the exam. I'll map him. Well, you can thank Admiral Zumball for that. He's the one who created the program. Uh, ombudsman. You know, it never occurred to me that we'd never had ombudsman before, but 50 years ago, we didn't. Zumball created that. Uh, you know, the way for uh, the command to be able to talk to the spouses and to the uh, to the families um, without just going through the sailors. The Sailor of the Year program. Once again, I was like, oh, never occurred to me that didn't come from just, it <laughs> just didn't come out of thin air. Once again, Zumball to recognize. High-performance sailors, and I think it's a great program. It's something that helps us really uh, motivate people. And then, um, you know, in the submarine force, we've had the chief of the boat concept forever. It didn't occur to me that the rest of the navy hadn't. Uh, the fleet force and command master slash senior chief programs, once again, started under Zumwalt. Um, and so, uh, 
And so there's some silly things that Zumwalt did as well that haven't lasted. Some of these uniforms he put in place that were uh, pretty strange for the t- you know, even for the 70s. Yeah, those didn't last. And I mean, there's some other things that he did that, uh, you know, I know some readers, for instance, were just like, what's with this six section uh, import watch rotation that he wants so bad? We can never do that. Right. You know, because these smaller ships, the smaller crews, you couldn't do that. But I think, it, you know, he was trying to do that to make it better for the import lives of the bigger ships that did. They could. Well, you know, sometimes that, that, that you know, there were unintended consequences to that. Uh, some of those things did not last. But uh, I think there were a lot of good things that did. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, one of these things is a historian, you know, contingency. You never know what's going to happen. When I wrote my essay, I originally did have a paragraph about uh, what he did about, you know, bringing women into the Navy, uh, the the bringing the, the first uh, integrated ship was uh, while well, he was uh, CNO, the sanctuary uh, hospital ship. Um, and then what he did uh, to combat racism, uh, very bold, very, uh, very honest. Uh, you know, the, the very famous uh, Z-66, uh, you know, where he says there's no white Navy, no black Navy. There's just one Navy, the United States Navy. I wanted to talk about all those things. But, you know, when you only have 3000 words, you got to you got to cut ruthlessly. And in the end, I was like, oh. A lot of other people have talked about what 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 Zumwalt did for racism and sexism. I'm going to cut it out, uh, you know, and it's just I don't need to have it in the essay. I submitted it, and then like I think I submitted it May 29th or May 28th, and then uh, a day or two later, George Floyd was murdered, and and our country had a much overdue uh, discussion about racism um, that I, and now I regret not including that paragraph about what Zumwalt did to help uh, when when he was CNO with dealing with it. But there's still a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. Again, on on in terms of the perspective piece, um, you bring up the 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 race situation in the early '70s. So there were race riots, um, you know, aboard Kitty Hawk, aboard Constellation. Um, you know, there was a massive drug problem. Uh, this is before your analysis programs. This is before, and I think Admiral Holloway, my father-in-law, others sort of viewed the lowering of. Um, the chain of command and standards as a fire sale on trying to make the Navy be like Woodstock, you know, and, and, and uh, they dealt with a lot of, again, the unintended consequences of his initiatives were what sort of, you know, this is where we're dealing with it now. You know, you have a hotline, other things to deal with sexual harassment or, you know, equal opportunity and all these things and, and in the hands of the wrong subordinate. And I think this is to your point about he assumed an, an intelligent quotient, a maturity that wasn't there, you know, so it can be weaponized and suddenly you're dealing with all kinds of stuff that, that now there is no chain of command. Um, and that was frustrating to Holloway and, and, and others, you know, so as you rightly say, his heart was in the right place, but perhaps he was naive by his own admission. He was naive about where the ripples go when you throw the stone in the pond kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, I mean, sometimes I think, uh, you know, and Holloway actually got at this in a, a memo that he wrote to the SECNAV when he was, uh, when, when he was told he was going to be CNO and the SECNAV said, all right, well, what, what, what would you do as CNO? And he wrote something in his memo that I thought was very interesting, especially given, uh, you know, his, his criticisms later of Zumwalt, where he said, I think, you know, the changes that have happened in the Navy would not have occurred without the shock tactics of Admiral Zumwalt and that we absolutely needed this to happen in order to have the change that has happened. And sometimes you need those really shocking uh, things to occur and, and, and things will never go back to being the same. And I think, you know, no matter what 
uh, Emerald Holloway and his VC, you know, Emerald Shear and some of the follow-on CNOs did, uh, um, you know, once the genie's out of the bottle, it's hard to put it back in. And I think a lot of the good things that Emerald Zomalt did have remained while a lot of the negative have been mitigated over the past 50 years as we have figured out the right ways to mitigate them. I mean, the drug issue, uh, you know, we did, we approached the Navy approached that all sorts of ways and, uh, Holloway never cracked this nut. Uh, and it wasn't until the end of, uh, you know, Hayward's time, uh, not on my Navy, not on my watch, uh, that we really finally cracked the nut on how do you deal with drugs in a Navy with your analysis, with your analysis testing and stuff like that. Um, and, and then into Emerald Watkins's time. But I mean, you know, the, the right answer isn't always right in front of you, but you got to start taking the right actions to at least get the, sh- the rudder turned and get the ship going in the right direction. Um, and I mean, to use a, uh, to use a nautical analogy, I would, I would rather have you make a, uh, a bad decision early that we can then, uh, you know, figure out how to get to right from, as opposed to making the perfect decision too late. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes, I mean, with, even with a big organization, sometimes a, uh, a not so great decision made early is still better than the perfect one made too late. The organization needed it. Joel, what do you think the current Navy could learn from, from Zumwalt Zegrams, particularly when we're talking about, you know, you were talking about Zumwalt and, um, you know, how he advocated new platforms. You know, we, we see that now, but you know, if we don't have sailors to man those platforms, then it doesn't matter how many new platforms we have. So what are some of the lessons that our current, um, you know, Navy leaders can take from Zumwalt's sort of bold actions to, you know, just get more people to want to be in the Navy and stay in the Navy? Well, I mean, I think some of the things, you know, I think, this, you know, this is one of those things in history where I think future Navy leaders really did take away some lessons from Admiral Zumwalt because uh, we get nav admins all the time. And some quite, I mean, not all of them are signed by the CNO, but some of them frequently are. Uh, the CNO and you know, previous CNOs have gone quite a bit on social media to talk uh, to the fleet, um, and uh, they do these all hands calls, uh, you know, where you can call in virtually, uh, ask questions on Facebook. Um, really made themselves accessible in a way that I think uh, previous CNOs, um, uh, even a few CNOs after Zumwalt, would not have been able to make themselves as accessible. Uh, and so I think that's definitely a, uh, it carries on the Zumwalt tradition. Uh, I def, you know, you also see them being very good advocates, uh, with Congress. Uh, you know, generally a guy does not go, uh, to one of those jobs unless they have an understanding of, of how things work with Congress, how you are supposed to, uh, to persuade, uh, undecided, uh, congressmen about, uh, what programs to fund and what programs not to fund, um, and how to, uh, stand up for these things. Uh, so I think, um, I'm not sure that there are any new lessons to be learned from the way Zumwalt did things. Uh, I mean, it was a change at the time because the, the CNO did not th- talk to the fleet that frequently. And, uh, and he really pushed very hard for his Zgrams to be read uh, to you know, or posted so the crew could read it. And as I said, one of my uh, friends who, uh, who served during the Zumwalt era sent me an email and uh, – yeah, I love this one thing he said is that, oh, the chief dutifully posted the Z-grams with disdain, often citing to all how utterly stupid the orders were and how they couldn't wait to retire. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yep, I've seen that. Uh, I remember when, uh, I remember that nonsense when we, we decided we would get rid of ratings uh, a few years ago, back in 2016. Um, and we got the message, we were all reading it, saying, what does this mean? And what are they trying to say? We're going to start referring to chiefs to CPO instead of, as uh, you know, YNC or something like that. What, what, what's this all mean? 
And then, uh, you know, like we saw Admiral Burke at the time was the chief of naval personnel, and he explained a little bit more about how we were no longer going to have HMs. It was just going to be PO1, PO2, PO3. And, you know, I remember the chief who was standing next to me as I was reading this out loud, she said, it's not my effing Navy anymore, and just stormed off. And I was like, I guess, uh, for that moment, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> now I know what the 70s must have been like. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think Sino Richardson was, is a student of, of Zumwalt uh, for, for sure. That was one of those where that was a big change that, uh, that, uh, you know, we ended up reversing course on. I think that was probably the right call as well. Uh, that, you know, like there was a lot of, lot of angst, uh, amongst, uh, amongst the sailors. And I think, I think properly so being, you know, their rate, they t- these guys take a lot of pride in their rating, um, and, uh, and their rate. And it's, uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's a good thing. Well, I, I draw the listener's attention to the photo on page 39, which I think is iconic. It's definitive. Um, the other thing I would ask the readers to note is the difference between Zumwalt's hairstyle on page 36 and on page 39. So by page 39, he's got the full flow going on, and you can see the sideburns. And this picture, um, I think this is on the mess decks of Kitty Hawk is where this was taken. Um, but he's conferring with what was probably some sort of a, a uh, minority concerns forum and you can see one of the uh it looks like a second class petty officer with the cool beard and the longish hair i was talking about and you know he's leaning forward Sino's leaning forward in earnest and he's got this expression it just it, it really is like a gothic an american gothic to me so I, I i entreat uh the listeners to check that out on page 39 our guest has been commander joel holwitt and the article is in the december issue of naval history magazine it's called lessons from admiral elmo Joel, it's always great to see you. It's great to hear from you. Um, Thank you for your participation in the Independent Forum, and thanks for being on the Proceedings Podcast today. Thank you, Ward. Thank you, Jenny. It's great to to see both of you, and uh, take care and be safe. And Jenny, thanks for co-hosting. Anytime. Yeah, we'll have to. I'm going to boot Eric out of the program, and you're now going to get. Yeah, I'm in. That's how showbiz works. That's how showbiz works. You know. You get your get rating, you so. get your spot and you take advantage of it and it's boom there you go all right well thanks very much that'll do it for this episode of the proceedings podcast remember victory begins at the naval institute we'll talk to you again soon <laughs>